Well, we're in a series right now, uh, just starting verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, uh, if you haven't been here. We are in this, this great focus of what it means to be uh, a believer in Christ, what it means to be a part of the church. Ephesians is a book that God has given us, written by the hand of Paul, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, that talks about a great God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 is the theme verse for the entire book, I believe, where it says, now to him, talking about God, him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, his power through his people. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I know as we assemble here this morning, there are various challenges in each of your lives. Some of you have things to celebrate right now. Some of you have challenges that are insurmountable and you're not sure what to do. Doesn't matter if you feel like you're in a season of blessing or a season of battle. God is the same. He is on his throne and he is powerful. So read that verse for your situation. Now to him, the God that I trust who is able to do far more abundantly than all that I'm going to pray for, beg for, ask help for, and anything I can imagine. God is very present to those who need him. And then when he brings his answer and he does it through working through you and your prayers and and your faith, he is going to be glorified in that situation. Stop holding on. Start releasing it to him. And then just say, Lord, how would you want me to respond? Don't overreact. Just walk and step with the Spirit, and you'll be amazed at what God will do in the situation, but how he'll do it often through you in some measure. One of my favorite movies, uh, now this dates me a little bit, but how many of you have seen um, A Field of Dreams? That cuts the congregation in half right there, you know, because that movie is older than some of you. Field of Dreams is a great movie. I'm a baseball fan, so that really captured my attention. I think it came out in the late 80s, but it's just one of, it's like Rudy, you know, Field of Dreams, all those movies are just the best. All the remakes of movies now just aren't worth it, let me just say. But it was in Field of Dreams, one portion I just wanted to reference today. Uh, basically, it's, it's the thing that somebody has a, a cornfield, so for those of you not familiar with the movie... Um, uh, Ray, uh, uh, this guy named Ray Cassetta or something, whatever his last name was, um, went out to Iowa, bought some field. He wasn't a farmer, but he's going to learn how to farm and raise corn. And uh, in uh, the middle of the field, well, he started having this vision that he should plant a baseball field in the middle of his corn, which would cut into his profits, but he, he, he feels compelled. He does it. And then he understands why after a little while, uh, guys off a, a baseball team for Chicago White Sox from a generation or several generations before, we're going to come and play on this field. So it's not spiritually accurate, but it's, it's insightful. It's just helpful. In a sense, it's kind of cool. But there was this one guy uh, named Archie Graham when he was a kid, but uh, later in years, uh, late, later years, he, uh, he was Dr. Graham. Or Moonlight Graham was his name. And uh, so this man named Terrence Mann and and Ray Kinsella were interviewing the townspeople about Doc Graham because he had already passed. They were trying to figure out there's something about Doc Graham that he's supposed to come play on this baseball field again. How can they get him when he's already gone? 
So they're, they're interviewing the townspeople about Doc Graham, and they were told that Doc's wife, Alicia, uh, Alicia uh, always wore blue. And so Doc would buy her blue hats as a gift anytime he went out of town and, and, uh, and would come back. He loved his wife, and he expressed his love through buying her these hats. Well, when Doc had passed away and they had his office cleaned out, they found several blue hats that he had never gotten around to giving her. He had so many blessings, he just didn't get to the point of being able to give it to her before he passed. And you may not know it, but this is the connection. You may not know it, but God has blessed you far more than you know. And there are far more blessings coming. That he's got in his closet ready to pull out at the appropriate time. And God's not going to pass. He's not going to, to, to limit when those come. But a careful study of God's Word is going to show us today in, in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3 through 14, where there are, there are three primary blessings I want you to not miss of what's already been given to you in Christ. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, we see the eternal forming of the body of Christ by God in these verses. In an amazing fashion, and, and you won't be able to see this necessarily in your, in your English text, but in the amazing fashion, Paul writes verse 3 through 14 as one Greek sentence. That doesn't really do well in English grammar, but Paul was so inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's so passionate about what God has revealed to him about these blessings of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He, he just can't stop talking. He's not taking a breath. He just goes on and on and on and on and on until he's able to get it all out. Paul reveals something to us so important that he doesn't want you to miss it, so he just writes it all down in one sitting. In Ephesians chapter 1, it gives us a a kind of a backstage pass to the Holy Trinity's uh, uh, magnificent master plan for the church. The Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all included in this first chapter. In verse 3 through 6, you'll see, uh, blessed be the God and Father. And and later, He has blessed us. There's a blessing of the Father that He is blessed, and then He is one who blesses. The Son is spoken about in verse 7 through 10. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. And then the Holy Spirit uh, seals the deal, if you will, down in verse 11 through 14, that He seals His followers, those who are believers, by the Holy Spirit, promised Holy Spirit. And so let me just highlight these, these major, uh, as I, I was combing through this text, we could spend weeks on each of these verses. But I'm just going to give you the highlights, I'm going to give you kind of the big picture. Perhaps we'll come back and look at these at a later time, but I didn't want you to miss these three major blessings in this passage. If you haven't already turned there, go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Let's start with the Father. We are blessed by the Father. And the key words here are chosen in Him. It's one of the greatest blessings that we have, that we're chosen in Him, that He chooses us. He loves us, invites us into the relationship. The two things that I want you to notice about God's choosing of us. First, God is worthy of blessing, that we bless Him, we speak highly of Him, we favor Him. It says in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's a God worthy of blessing. From Genesis to, Re- or Genesis to Revelation, God is blessed. Uh, Melchizedek in Genesis says, blessed be God most high. In Revelation, 
It says, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is a God who is worthy of being blessed, honored, praised, exalted. The reason he's in a position to bless others is because he is fully blessed and deserves blessing. And now he is willing to bless, if you see in verse 3, who has Past tense, once again, has blessed us in Christ. That's the identifier of where the blessings come from. The blessings are through Christ, His Son, the Redeemer of believers, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not only does God deserve bless, but He is a blesser. He blesses us. James chapter 1, verse 17, some of you know it well. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Every good thing comes from God. Even when it appears bad, God can turn it to good. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, some of you have memorized this verse. And we know that for those who who love God, are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good. In our human perspective, our limited perception, some things just look so bad, even beyond God's grasp or ability to change. But we've got to trust the God who is already blessed, that He chooses to bless even when things don't look so good, because He can work it together for good. Are you patient enough? Are you praying, God, help me to see what I cannot see so that I can uh, enjoy the working you've got in this journey of blessing. Who is this us here? Who has blessed us? That's an indicator you must determine. Who is the us in the passage? Is it just for this church in Ephesus? Well, from other places in Ephesus, we realize this is a circular letter. Maybe it's going to go beyond Ephesus. It's going to go to all believers in Christ from this generation in the first century all the way to ours and beyond. So there's this us. It's those who are blessed in Christ or those who are in Christ, who are those who are believers. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed. The blessing comes from the God we trust in and believe in and have surrendered to. And I think about our world that we live in today. Some of you perhaps even right now, people worldwide are searching for an identity. Who am I? What value do I have? Uh, where, where, where should I find my significance? And too often people in this world, in this world look for places that, that seem to give them some satisfaction, but it's in temporary satisfaction that does not last and does not satisfy. Oh, I just want to feel important. I just want to be a part of something bigger than myself. All of that is, is, is good and right in some ways, but where we find that is always lacking. But when you're in Christ, your life is is significant and eternally blessed. God tells us here, right here, don't don't go for the the temporary worldly pleasures. Go for Christ who will fill you and bless you far more abundantly than all you could ever ask or imagine. If you want to be blessed, stop looking in the wrong places. Search for Him, the God who actually searches for you. Put your faith in Christ. Let me show you how the Father blesses us. Well, the first thing He does is He chooses us. I want you to look at verse 4. 
even as he chose us, and you've got to connect the next two, ver- uh, two words here, even as he chose us in him, Christ is the key to unlock your heart, to bring you into a relationship with the eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when did this choosing take place? Before the foundation of the world, that he, we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, some of these verses may be very, very um, challenging to understand, and even brings those in controversy who want to debate one side or the other. Does God choose us, or do we choose God? And I say, yes. Let me help you from a perspective of someone from another generation, Charles Spurgeon. He expressed his thoughts in an introduction to a sermon when he said, it has been my earnest endeavor ever since I have preached the word never to keep back a single doctrine which I believe to be taught by God. It is time that we had, uh, had done with the old and rusty systems that have so long curbed the freshness of religious speech. The Arminian trembles to go even an inch beyond Arminianism or Wesley, and many a Calvinist referred to John Gill and John Calvin as the ultimate authority. It is time that the systems were broken up and that there was sufficient grace in all of our hearts to believe everything taught in God's Word, whether it is taught by these men or these or neither. If God teaches it, it is enough. If it is not in the Word, away with it. Away with it, he says. But if it it be in the Word, agreeable or disagreeable, systematic or disorderly, I believe it. Born as all of us are by nature an Arminian. And you may not understand even the terms Arminian or Calvinist, but, but walk with me through this. Born as all of us are by nature an Arminian. Basically meaning that we choose God and he goes, oh, okay, thanks for, for coming to me. I'll accept you because you chose me first. That's basically a bare bones Arminianism, uh, extreme Arminianism. He says, by nature, we're all born that way. I still believe the old things I had heard continually from the pulpit and did not see the grace of God. I remember sitting one day in the house of God and hearing a sermon as dry as possible and as worthless as all such sermons are. When a thought struck my mind, how come I, or how came I to be converted? I prayed and I thought. Then I thought, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. Well, how came I to read the Scriptures? Why? I did read them. And what led me to that? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that He was the author of my faith. And then the whole doctrine opened up to me from which I have not departed. If you're pursuing God... Get on your knees and thank God that he spurred a thought, a heartbeat for you to want him. Because in our sin, we are selfish and separated and don't desire him. God initiates that relationship. And we are responsible for responding either by accepting or some will reject. But pursue him because he has pursued you. The God on high tells us in Jonah chapter 2 verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. In 1 John 4, 19, we love first, or we love because he first loved us. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he who began that work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. 2 Timothy 1, 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many had been adopted to eternal life, believed. God chose Israel. God chose leaders in the Old Testament. And God is choosing people to be saved through Christ in the church. Even our doctrinal statement, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, says this. Article 5, God's purpose of grace. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, he justifies, he sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. In that while we were still sinners... Let me extend the thought, while you're not pursuing God, Christ died for you and pursues you. How are you going to respond to him? A blessing of God is that you're not an afterthought. You were a thought before the foundation of the world. He loves you. And he's calling you to salvation, not by your works, but by God's grace through Christ who died for you on the cross and rose from the dead to defeat the penalty of of sin. Think about it. When you pray for people to be saved, do you pray that God would change their mind? Do you pray that God would transform a heart? That he would break through the rebellion that people have opposed to God? Why do you pray for God to do something if he is unable? God is more than able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And you think, yeah, but that cousin of mine, that, that weird uncle of mine, that, that, that coworker of mine, that person down the street, they are so lost. They're, I mean, they're so lost. They're like a, a golf ball in high weeds that Zach Martin hit somewhere. They'll never be found. And you know what will take place when you trust in a sovereign God? He can break through any heart. And why can Paul say this? Is because Paul was one of those. Paul was not pursuing Christ. Christ pursued Paul. And when uh, uh, encountering the Christ, the risen Lord, he chose Christ in response and said yes and became a, an apostle to the Gentiles. But Christ isn't just, our, the Father's not only choosing, he's actually changing us. As you see here, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why would he choose us if he's not going to transform us? Uh, the word holy, holy and blameless, holy, hagios, same as saint, as we've already talked about, that we are called saints, holy ones. And we're blameless in his calling. He's the one who blesses us with this change. Free from sin and above reproach. 
prior to, to salvation, I find that we may be in a, a Capernaum revolution uh, that's taking place, a spiritual Capernaum revolution. Nicholas Copernicus is the one who, who uh, the 16th century astronomer who discovered the sun does not rotate around the earth, but all the planets rotate around the sun. The sun is the center of the solar system and not our world. But likewise, as, a, as an unbeliever, someone who's rebellious against Christ, you think the whole world revolves around you. You see this in a two-year-old. It's all, mine, mine. That's why in preschool, two- and three-year-olds, they don't share. They just play in the same room. Which, by the way, if you'd like to observe that, you can get on the nursery rotation. I have to throw that in once in a while. But it's true. We are all that way. We arrogantly question whether we should allow God to have any part of our life. As if God's just kind of revolving around us, hopeful that we'll open up. We have to recognize we're hell-deserving sinners. So the question is not whether we're going to accept God who revolves around us, but whether we're going to recognize He's the center of all things and wonder why a God would accept us. I heard a speaker years ago say, you know, we go, oh, are you going to accept God? And he says, as if he's acceptable? He is more than acceptable. The more challenging question is, why would an acceptable, worthy God accept us who, is, who, who are not acceptable, who are sinful? God accepts you in this, that he looks past your sin, says, I'll cover that with my, the blood of my son. And I'll bring you in. Even though you're not acceptable, I will save you because I love you. I don't love you because of what you do. I don't love you because of some directions, desires you have. I love you because of my pure, loving grace that cannot be earned. It can only be received. He does 100% of the cleansing of your soul and brings you into your relationship. And so stop thinking you're the center of the world, but God is the center of all things and we are heated and warmed and, and received by him alone. And I want you to notice in verse 4 and 5, not only that, uh, that he's changing us, he cherishes us. I want you to, to not miss this. Verse, uh, right at the end of verse 4, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is a bl- mind-blowing uh, significance here. That in love, it draws him to adopt you. To adopt you. How many of uh, here have ever uh, adopted or know someone who's been adopted? Yeah, almost anybody in the room. You know some adoptions. Those are precious. We're praying for a young family that's been a part of our church that is pursuing adoption just in the next few months. It's a, it's a, it's a laborious process going through all the paperwork and all and, and trying to just, uh, just pray God's guidance and wisdom to be directed to, to the child, to be connected to that family. And here it is, God uses this language that we are orphaned in our sin and he not only loves you enough to to, to bring you into salvation, he's saying, you're going to become my child. I'm taking you into the family. I'm not just sponsoring you once a month for $35 down so you can stay where you are, which is a good and holy thing that we can do as believers. But God doesn't just say, I'll, I'll, I'll send you some resources once in a while. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing you into my family. You're one of my children. I'm adopting you as if you were a part of me always. He cherishes 
the relationship he has for those who are sinful, he cleanses and brings into his family. In John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, receive, believe, all those things are interconnected, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. When we arrive in heaven as believers in Christ, God will not only welcome us, he'll remind us we are wanted by him. That's why I like to say that around here. You're welcome to come to West Lynchburg, but you're really wanted here because God wants you. God wants you for eternity. He wants to, to adopt you and bring you into his kingdom. And I can only imagine him saying uh, words like this. I am so glad to welcome you into your eternal home. This is your home because it's our home as a family. For I chose to save you for my son before I made the world. I sent my son to die for you on the cross. I arranged a history to ensure that your birth uh, was at the right moment and steer your life so you would hear the gospel. I brought someone to explain the gospel to you and opened your eyes to recognize Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I carried you through when you were weak and I held on to you when you tried to run away. And now, finally, I can welcome you into my home because I've always wanted you here. It is so good to see you. I've loved you for such a very long time. That's the blessing of the Father. Don't miss this blessing. But let's include the Son here. We are blessed by the Son by being redeemed in Him. He does this a couple of ways. I want you to see this. He's redeeming us. In verse 7, in Him we have... In him we have redemption through his blood. The adoption process required a payment, and Christ was willing to give that payment to redeem us. He died, shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there'd be no remission, no forgiveness of sins. God's choosing and changing and cherishing us as children took effect by Jesus stepping in and redeeming us. Redeem, theological definition, an act of God by which he himself pays a ransom price for the sin of an offense against his holiness. A simple definition, he rescued you by paying the penalties of, of sin. He paid the price. In Roman culture, in the Roman Empire, there were six million slaves. That's about 15% of the population in the Roman culture. Slaves in Rome might be included uh, uh, because of prisoners of war, sailors captured and sold by pirates, slaves uh, bought outside of the Roman territory. In these hard times, it was not even uncommon for Roman citizens to raise money to survive by selling their own children. And on occasion, very few occasions, somebody who knew a slave and had the means would attempt to free that slave by buying the rights to set them free. He would go to the master and negotiate a price. And upon the full payment of that price, the one who bought the slave would then tell the slave, I have redeemed you. You are no longer a slave, no longer in bondage. You are now free. You can imagine the, the release of, of, of difficulty and heartache for that particular slave in that culture to be redeemed and set free. And Christ says, I stepped into the world where you are in bondage to sin. And I've redeemed you 
set you free from that. How would the slave in the first century feel about the Redeemer? Be eternally grateful, dedicated. What is it for believers who are redeemed by Christ, forgiven of their sins? Do we just say, thanks, I'll see you at the end? Or is there a desperate desire to, be, uh, to know Him intimately? That you want to know the one who redeemed you. But are we really slaves is the question. Do, do we really need redemption? As some in this world say, I'm a pretty good person. I pay my taxes, or at least most of them. You know, I, I'm pretty nice to my neighbors. I show up to work on time. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But what does the, the Scriptures tell us? In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave. He uses the word. We're a slave to sin if we, if we sin. In Romans 6, 17, be, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin. In Romans 7, 14, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions and pleasures. Some of you are believers still go under the identity of a slave to your own passions and pleasures. And if you'd recognize that the Holy Spirit's within you and you are no longer a slave to those passions and pleasures, you have the ability to look for a way out that God has given you. You can turn off the TV. You can shut down the internet. You can go be with people who will encourage you and you can say, no longer I am free from the sinful passions and pleasures that, I, that had a grip on me. No longer God can break those chains. This is a blessing that Christ gives us. He redeems us. He forgives us. You look at the next passage. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth, once again, in Christ. This forgiveness is the, the removal, the sending away, never to return uh, to our account. That is what Jesus does with your guilt and your sin. Do you deserve this? You know, Romans 8, 1, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, we don't deserve that. But Jesus' love is enough to redeem us and forgive us. The last thing I see in the Scripture about Christ is this, that He unites us as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. This, this uniting here unites all things. He's uniting us with the relationship with the Father. He's connecting to us as as our spiritual brother, Jesus. He's going to send in the Holy Spirit to preserve us. I'll, I'll show you that in a moment. But he's uniting people who are not like each other. They don't look like one another. They don't come from the same background. In this context, what is he uniting? He's uniting Jews who have grown up in the faith and now have discovered Christ is their Messiah and he's, he's uniting the Gentiles who, who did not have a prior faith in God. They could have faith in all kinds of gods. Or perhaps they had no relationship with God. Or they were maybe just an outsider, kind of a God-fearer, but didn't understand. And now they've come to Christ as their Savior and Lord. And he's uniting Jews and Gentiles together in the same worship house where nobody thought that was possible. 
And now he's uniting first century Christians, followers of Christ, with second century, third century, all the way through our time today. We are united in the same family. We're the church. Not a building, but a people. And how in the world can people from Africa and Asia and, and Europe and South America and North America and all over the other continents, how can we be united? You know, one day there's going to be a movement in our world to have a one world government to unite us all. And it'll be a movement of the devil. There's only one way to be united, and it's in Christ, the one who redeems doesn't matter where you come from, what, what your social status is, what your financial backing is. All of us come humbly to receive God's adoption by the redemption of Christ, and he unites us. And when we're united, I want you to notice this last few verses here as we close up, how the Spirit steps in. The promised Holy Spirit that, the, that Jesus uh, uh, told them about, the disciples. This is where the Spirit steps in and convicts us. And he guides us and he confirms us. And then in verse 13, we're going to see he seals us. In the convicting process, Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 8, when he comes, speaking about the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There's a conviction about who we are apart from Christ, and he leads us to the forgiveness that Christ offers And there's the guiding uh, of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. That which our mind does not comprehend, does not see, doesn't understand, the Holy Spirit will guide us to the truth if we're willing to listen to the Word of God that's revealed and the promptings of the Spirit. And then He confirms us. In uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. Am I really following Christ? He will bear witness in our own spirit that we're really one of His. I love how Martin Luther said, the Holy Ghost has been called, uh, uh, the Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel and illuminated me with His gifts and sanctified me and preserved me in the true faith. And then verse 13 of Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed, protected, not to be broken, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The Father calls out and chooses us. The Son redeems us with His blood, and the Spirit seals that till the day of redemption when we see the Father face to face. The guarantee. If God guarantees something, it's not ever going to be broken. I think of the various inheritances that people have received over the years. Oh, I look forward to my inheritance. Is that your heartbeat for what God has sealed for you on the day that he comes for us? Whether the day he comes for all of us at once or the day he just comes for you individually because you have died before that time, he's coming to grant you the inheritance that you did not earn. That's the thing about inheritance. It's not an earning factor. It's a gift of grace. Let me close with this verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Don't miss it.